Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. We welcome everyone to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton Working Behind the Scenes, and we wish everyone who celebrates a happy holiday weekend, and certainly for all the retailers out there, happy Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, and Cyber Monday weekend as well. Coming up on today's show, we'll be joined by Brandon Eisner, the head of retail research at CBRE. He'll discuss their 2021 holiday projections, but more than that, he gives context to those projections insofar as it pertains to retail shopping centers throughout the United States and what that will mean for retail shopping center owners. He'll also discuss some research he's looking ahead to for 2022 regarding technology and retail. In news, of course, the big one of the week came via Dollar Tree. We'll discuss that as well as Burlington earnings numbers. And in the Looking Ahead segment, we'll discuss Target's vow to close in perpetuity for Thanksgiving. A quick reminder that you can like us and rate us however you access us on whichever podcast platform that happens to be. If you enjoy the show, your positive ratings certainly help others to check us out and find us. You can also follow us on social media at Retail Podcast, both Instagram and Twitter. So let's get right into it again. The news that many media outlets were talking about earlier this past week before all the Black Friday and Small Business Saturday shopping took place. This came down after an earnings call, but after trials in various markets, Dollar Tree increases their price point. You really have to think that this is an enormous pivot for the company. We know they've been testing this, but certainly a pivot that was maybe necessary to retain the margins that shareholders desire, but one that could also certainly impact the future direction of the store and the company as a whole. Now, this announcement came against the backdrop of an earnings call that was positive for their family dollar stores, but perhaps not as much from the Dollar Tree side. Just in terms of the numbers, family dollar comp sales were up 2.7%. Over the third quarter of 2020, that is their third consecutive quarter of double-digit two-year stack numbers. And again, their comps this year build off a strong year that saw last year full-year comp increases of double digits. And Meanwhile, Dollar Tree cycling an up-and-down 2020 as they struggled to keep merchandise in stock last year. They gained just 0.6% on 2020 on the comp sales front. And indeed, the strength of the company, or at least the company's momentum, seems to have shifted from a few years ago when activist investors were clamoring for Dollar Tree to either sell off or spin off Family Dollar. It turns out right now Dollar Tree looks as the weaker of those two stores just in terms of momentum, not necessarily in terms of margin or sales or anything like that. But in any case, the company released a lengthy statement in their earnings release regarding the increase in prices for most of their products from $1 to $1.25. The price increase won't affect certain front store items, so things like candy bars or other food items that were already below a dollar in price point also won't affect paper products like greeting cards and poster board. But inflation and the need to retain margins were, of course, cited as reasons for the change, which was previewed somewhat by the company in September of this year when they noted that they were rolling it out to more than just the Dollar Tree Plus stores that they had already been testing it in. They rolled it out to about 200 test stores at that time, and already we're getting the announcement that they are very quickly raising these prices. 
They did note also that the changes are permanent and not a, and I quote, reaction to short-term market conditions. Now, we've seen Dollar Tree and others, five below for one, use kind of a certain template for these types of changes in the past for when Dollar Tree rolled out Dollar Tree Plus, when five below began offering items above and beyond the $5 price point. That playbook was certainly followed here as well. Now, the benefits extolled by the company include, of course, an expanded product selection, the ability to introduce new daily essentials, reintroducing maybe products that they had been priced out of offering in the past, and then, of course, different sizes of products being able to be offered to customers as well with that $1.25 price point. Particularly as the sizing is concerned, and here you're talking mostly about the size of packages, particularly in consumables, we heard Michael Watinsky, their CEO, note that they were having a hard time sourcing food, especially perishables like meat, during the pandemic because manufacturers began to favor larger selling sizes as a result of customer demand. And that's pretty much something we've heard ever since March of 2020, is that retailers, particularly grocers, are seeing more and more people buying in bulk, so they're stocking more items in bulk. Of course, this trend kind of went up that chain, and as a result, a lot of the meat packers, a lot of the other food producers are producing larger packaging that might not fit in that dollar price point. Now, another play from this so-called playbook when you raise prices is noting that the price increases will help to offset wage increases. And of course, realistically, this is a, certainly a concern for Dollar Tree, but they've also been affected by increased freight and purchasing costs like everyone else. And although their margins have always been good, historically, in fact, better than the likes of grocers, let's say, uh, shareholders have demanded similar returns to what they were seeing in 2017 and 2016 on the margin front. Really kind of pressured the company to stray from their dollar price point years ago, in fact, particularly those activist investors. Basically, those investors wanted to see something similar to what Dollar Tree Plus has become now, but also saw pressure even back then to roll off of that $1 price point. So the increases will be effective in all of their stores by the end of the first quarter of 2022. It'll be added to around 2,000 more legacy stores in December beyond the 200 they've been testing so far. But what of those stores that they tested the pricing in and how did those tests go for the company? Well, you'd think they went at least slightly positive, otherwise the company wouldn't be doing this across the board, although again investor pressure is certainly a big reason why we see companies make changes overall. But originally the test began even before September in Dollar Tree Plus stores. But in September, as I mentioned already, they wanted to test it in nearly 200 of those Dollar Tree legacy stores as well. Those tests generally positive. Surveys of customers proved okay. Customers weren't overwhelmingly for it or against it necessarily. 77% of the customers noted that they were immediately aware of the price increases when entering the stores that were being tested, and 91% said that they will, knowing about the price increases, return to shop at a Dollar Tree as often or more often than before. And I think the first number, the awareness of those price increases, is important. They were asked on the call if perhaps Dollar Tree would go against their typical marketing regimen, which doesn't usually include a lot of external marketing, a lot of 
television, a lot of digital media and such. They said, hey, we'll kind of wait and see as far as our approach goes. But right now they're using primarily in-store and out-of-store signage to indicate the changes. And you do also wonder what kind of sales impact losing that 9% if they do indeed leave, because oftentimes people don't always carry out what they say they're going to do. But if that 9% is lost as a customer base, you wonder whether they were regular customers to begin with, what type of spend you were looking at for those customers, and so forth. And the company did say in their prepared remarks that they feel as though response will be positive because of all the new SKUs that they'll be able to add as a result of the higher price point. At least that's their overall hope. Dollar Tree traffic has gone down slightly since the beginning of the pandemic. And, and Watinsky said on the call that their goal really is to help replace the lost traffic by enticing customers to come back with that new selection and the new SKUs. There are other key questions going forward as well. Obviously, this lifts constraints on buyers a little bit, increasing that price point. How is this going to impact inventory and the use of store space as well in the near future? How many customers will actually abandon Dollar Tree versus the 9% that was surveyed? We've seen, of course, the plus rollout, and now this. Will this make for a potential slippery slope of constantly increasing prices? And other questions, will there be more tiering of prices as well as what you see at Dollar Tree Plus? And if so, will this add to the cost to operate each store since they can currently do without infrastructure such as individual item shelf tags? In fact, they don't even use planograms at their stores, but you figure more fragmentation of prices might force something like that in there, might force increased staff, might force increased printing costs as well. And one more question, as Michael Lasser from UBS actually astutely asked on the call, is two months enough to test the concept? After all, this has only been tested for a couple of months at this point, and that they talked around on the call. They didn't really give Mr. Lasser a clear answer to his question, so I think there are a lot of unknowns here as far as how customers will take to this because you have a small test contingent of stores and an even smaller period of time that they tested this format in a much smaller period of time than they took to test Dollar Tree Plus. And finally, just other things to note, not regarding the price increase, but just regarding Dollar Tree as a company overall, because we did get additional information on the call. Granted, most of the questions on the call itself were related to the price point. They do expect to add 400 more combo Dollar Tree family dollar stores through either adding new stores or renovations. They expect to also add the plus concept to 1,500 more Dollar Tree stores and then also plan to renovate 800 legacy family dollar stores into their H2 format. So still a substantial amount of CapEx here, still a substantial amount of growth expected for this coming year even if the company as a whole does feel the potential stress from those raised prices for inventory coming in. Now, on a go-forward basis, they've identified 3,000 towns total for the combo stores, either existing family dollar and Dollar Tree markets or perhaps new ones long-term. By 2024, they want 5,000 Dollar Tree Plus stores, and those, again, have the $1.25, $3, and $5 differentiated price points. But again, big news, that $1.25 price point change for 
Dollar Tree. Now, in a quick story following up the Ross story in last week's show, Burlington also gave us an update on their progress in off-price as well. The big theme on the call was customer perception of value here. They noted multiple times on the call that based on their internal data, customers feel more strongly about the value proposition at Burlington than they did in years past. And as with Ross, their comparisons were against the third quarter of 2019, and they saw solid growth. Comp store sales grew 16% over 2019. Total sales increased 30%. Again, another one of the off-pricers that is expanding with regularity, helping to really push that top-line revenue. They did see a drastic increase in what they call product sourcing costs, though, and I think probably this is the main negative from the call. That's the cost of processing goods through their supply chain and their buying costs. So from buying to stocking those shelves in the store, that process is costing the company significantly more. Costs there went from $90 million in 2019 to $173 million in 2020. Far outstrips the pace of sales and that top-line sales increase that you see there. Part of this, of course, due to all of those supply chain costs that people are talking about, but their buying costs also went up incrementally, which is, again, something that Ross didn't really mention in their earnings call, saying that their buying costs were roughly equivalent and that it was the supply chain costs really putting some pressure on their bottom line. Now, as far as Burlington is concerned, they still expect their location growth to continue for 2021. They anticipate adding a total of 77 net new stores when all is said and done for the year. Some of these stores are their smaller design. We've talked about that on the show in the past, but many of the new stores that they're opening are around half of the square footage of their traditional stores. Some of their traditional stores could be close to about 100,000 square feet in size, and I know certainly in malls throughout the country, you've seen Burlington backfill empty anchor spots left behind by the likes of Sears and closed JCPenney stores. Now, regarding our discussion of deal flow for Ross last week, Michael O'Sullivan, Burlington's CEO, also expects things to pick up when supply chain pressure eases. This was a sentiment generally issued by Ross management on their call last week. As far as O'Sullivan is concerned, he feels as though higher realized prices at other retailers will push more customers into the value segment, That'll give Burlington the opportunity to win business while also potentially raising their retail prices, but could also push merchandise into the off-price buying stream. Now, when that supply chain pressure will ease, no one really knows, but O'Sullivan said that once pressure does ease, he feels like there will be, and I quote, unprecedented off-price buying opportunities. So again, a little more optimism there from Burlington on the call more optimism for the off-price segment. And overall, Burlington feels as though, in terms of their value proposition, that they've really been able to increase market share over the past two years. And they're not taking share away from the likes of TJX, away from the likes of Ross. The market share they're winning is not necessarily in off-price, but the broader apparel retail universe overall and if his point, if his conjecture about people may be turning away from full price fashion as those prices increase as a result of inflation is true, then they stand to gain even more market share over the next few years. Again, conjecture a little bit on the company's part, but still 
something worth keeping an eye on. Either way, Burlington very bullish as they head into their 2022 fiscal year based on the information we got this week on the call. Well, coming up in our interview segment, once again, we'll be joined by Brandon Eisner, the head of retail research at CBRE and the author of their annual holiday shopping trends report. He'll talk about that report. Also, some research he's looking ahead to in 2022 regarding retail technology and what shopping centers are doing late in 2021 to continue to try and attract shoppers to brick-and-mortar stores. To this point, we've worked to preview holiday sales expectations, expectations of consumers, and the expected cadence of sales for the holiday season with various interviews over the last few weeks. And this week, it's our turn to look at how projected holiday shopping trends will affect retail real estate, including the many shopping centers and malls throughout the country. Joining us to discuss their recent Retail Holiday Trends report release is Brandon Eisner, the head of retail research at CBRE Americas, and most importantly, the author of this report. Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Brent, thank you very much. I'm, I'm very happy to be here and to uh, help drive the retail narrative into the what's expected to be a great holiday season. It certainly is. And I was wondering if you could first give us a bit of a background about the CBRE Retail Holiday Trends Report. This is something we cover every year, but just so our listeners know, what's kind of the importance or the driving reason behind it from CBRE's perspective of conducting this research and then producing this report? Certainly. Well, the Holiday Trends Report is something that's been put out for several years, predating my time in this role, actually. Although we scaled it down a bit this year to be more quick hitting, you know, more on the on the quick research brief side of it, it remains an important report for both retail landlords and retail occupiers, as you know, for many in the retail industry, to quote a famous holiday tune, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And that's true. You know, a lot of retailers, the holiday season is make or break. And so there's a lot of people that are interested in, in the findings. And, you know, we're definitely not the only report out there, but it's good to get a overview of everything that we expect to happen. You know, some of our predictions differ from others. And then also to have a report that talks about the potential challenges. You know, we do expect a good holiday season, but at the same time, you know, there are some issues that remain out there that could be obstacles to a great holiday season. So I think it's important to kind of diagram all those and, you know, just give our best guess as to where we think the holiday season is going to go. And as we've talked about in previous weeks, of course, the forecasts suggest a very robust holiday season in terms of year over year sales. But one of the main points in your aggregated research is the fact that currently consumers debt service is at a pretty low level, at least lower than what we've seen in years past. How is this expected to maybe affect that holiday spend coming in from consumers this year? Yeah, and that's one of those tidbits of knowledge that I think is kind of unexpected, but it's true, you know, in the data that we acquired from the St. Louis Fred, which is the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, which is a great job of aggregating different data sources and putting it into a great way to be able to analyze that. This is where my role involves a little bit of art, to be honest. Yes, you know, debt service is very low, is a share of personal disposable income for households. And then you team that up with personal savings rate, 
which has hit all-time highs over the last 18 months. And it's come down a little bit since, but it's still at a level that's about double the long-term average of that. And so personal savings rate is high, debt is very low. And then you combine that with more or less the loss of the holiday shopping season last year. I mean, yes, e-commerce sales exploded last year and made sure that the retail sales figures stayed strong, but brick and mortar retail received no growth last year. And so, you know, retail spaces are where we hang out. It's part of our society. And so I I think that there's going to be a drive to get back out there and to experience the holiday season in retail centers and, and just connect with people and, and reconnect with their brands in person. And I think it just all bodes well for a great holiday season, again, for retailers and for retail real estate owners. And let's talk a little bit about that mix, because as you mentioned last year, brick and mortar didn't see a lot of growth, more or less flat. E-commerce was the area that saw growth. This year, we've seen prognostications anywhere from 40 to 80% in some cases, e-commerce sales or customers expecting to spend money on e-commerce sales. But when you look at the larger picture, and your research certainly points to this, it does still seem like the lion's share of spend will come in on brick and mortar. What's your research finding as far as how that spend is going to be split up this year between those e-com services and between those sales that touch brick and mortar? In the report, I think that we were predicting around 20% e-commerce of the total retail sales. But you know, honestly, those numbers are pretty muddied now, right? Because I think that people in the entire retail industry finding out that e-commerce and brick and mortar, they're not in competition with each other. They work together. And being good at one makes you better at the other. And there's several retailers that we're unable to name exact brand names, you know, due to some client confidentiality agreements, but they're out there where like a brand that was a great e-commerce retailer is now realizing that they need to break into brick and mortar to get closer to their clients and to embrace that as part of their growth. And then on the other side of the spectrum, a retailer that's a great brick and mortar retailer has discovered throughout the pandemic how to really operate their e-commerce platform. And that's become a great new source of revenue and way to get their brand out to people. So again, it's that idea of being good at one makes you better at the other. And I think that mobile phones are becoming a much bigger part of the retail sector. There's some retail data centers that will say that they expect 10% of total retail sales to be through mobile phones by 2025. And so it's a growing segment. And those mobile transactions, a lot of times they're through a retailer's app. And so that ends up being a sale that's often fulfilled at a brick and mortar retail store. So again, it's omni-channel, that word's been used a lot, but it really is the future of retail and how to better embrace both sides of it, brick and mortar and e-commerce, and get them to work together to establish the best efficiency that a retail company can realize. And I know you can't name names, but we've certainly heard from retailers like, for example, Duluth Trading Company, when they open a brick and mortar store in a market, their e-commerce sales there go up. So very salient to your points as well there. Now, let's turn our attention outside of sales to traffic. What do some of the recent foot traffic trends suggest about 
potential mall and shopping center traffic this holiday season as far as people actually setting foot in those venues? Trent, the traffic, the data that we have available to us now, it's amazing. And there's this you know, this great company out there called Placer AI that does data you know, from mobile phone pings. And they put out data this summer, which will you know be updated very soon, I would imagine. But the data that they had showed that foot traffic for indoor malls had almost completely recovered from pre-pandemic levels, you know, recovered back to pre-pandemic levels. And when they took into account outdoor centers, they've even surpassed foot traffic from pre-pandemic levels. And again, I think that, you know, this is just that idea that people were anxious to get out and to take part in society, which happens quite a bit in the retail centers. And I touched on this a little bit earlier. I think that this holiday season will be another example of that. And people will be home. People will be wanting to get out. And so we're expecting foot traffic at retail centers to be high. And I don't have to tell you this, but of course, when we talk about retail centers, shopping centers, there are a lot of different types of shopping centers, whether it's your neighborhood grocery anchored center or you know a gigantic mall And I'm curious, based on your research there, which centers or maybe even specific retailers might see increased or decreased traffic coming up this holiday season? Well, I'll answer this in this way. So in regard to consumers and shoppers, people want experiences and they want authenticity. And they want those experiences that they can't have in other places. So, you know, centers that have a great store mix and that have great programming with great events, they will stand to do very well. But that said, you know, convenience is still key. You know, one of the great things we found about open air grocery anchored centers, which they're the gold standard of retail, is that they've adapted very well to omni-channel retailing, you know, click and collect for groceries works quite well, involving curbside pickup. And so I don't think it's more about an asset class, but I think that it's more in the ability to keep on top of trends and you know the idea of, of being able to have curbside parking. And if you're a mall operator, having great events, decorations, you know, people get out and they want to see decorations. In New York City, there's a famous department store that people will always go to the window to, to check it out. And so it's these things. I don't think it's one asset class. It goes back to the retailer and the owner. It's like, how can they best engage people? And they know their clients better than anybody else. And so they'll hopefully go on those strengths to position themselves to have a great holiday season. Well, let's go ahead and use that as a jumping off point. Based on your position in the industry, What are maybe some best practices? What are some things that you're seeing done as far as these centers really trying to make things welcoming for shoppers here in 2021, knowing that, you know, hey, we're still kind of in a pandemic, but just creating that welcoming atmosphere, whether it's through decorations or some other means? Sure. So I think, you know, and again, I touched on this a second ago. I think people want a better brand experience. And I was reading something recently about the Gen Z generation and how they're less likely to just overly trust brands than any of the generations before them, because I think they've, they've been there, done that, right? And so I think people want a better connection between them and the stores. Now, this doesn't mean downloading an app and being forced to put all your personal information. And I'm talking about 
like actual brand connection. You can imagine which brands do an exceptional job at this and which don't. And I think we're also getting away from the era where stores stock everything. We've seen those department stores where you enter a section, there's nobody working there, the merchandise and displays look tired. That's just not good for brand. And more efficient, focused retailers and brand can better focus on their clients. And they'll often have more focused store ambassadors as well. And I think that you know, we're seeing this, and I'm sure you've probably interviewed a lot of these folks, these longstanding retail stores and brands, you know, they're coming up with additional concepts, like big department stores are doing like a smaller version where they can be more focused and maybe not you know, be based in a mall, but be based in an open air center, like a little bit closer to a neighborhood. So again, I think that there's no right or wrong answer, but you know, retail is really interesting in that it's very adaptable. It's very flexible and it can flex to trends. This is on a real estate basis that I'm talking about. It can flex to trends a lot quicker than other commercial real estate asset classes can do. So we're in a good position to be able to make those centers more welcoming and engage with customers better in regard to brand. You mentioned adjustments and flexibility. This is something we heard a lot about in 2020 as buy online pickup and store traffic increased centers work to make a few adjustments on that front where are we kind of at in terms of retail real estate regarding maybe maximizing efficiency of some of that buy online pickup in store or curbside customer flow in 2021 at these centers throughout the country you know, I'm thinking of like those multiple choice questions and <laughs> you know, I'm thinking like the one at the bottom that says, you know, all the above or not applicable. The pandemic just threw such a obstacle in the whole cog. And so I, it's, it's a tough one because I think that, you know, some areas of the country are still trying to manage social distancing requirements within stores. But this is a place where the partnership of technology and brick and mortar retail can really shine, right? I think that Going back to that narrative of e-commerce and brick and mortar are not in competition. And so, you know, a great app can make it easier to navigate the store without maybe having to engage one of the store ambassadors to help you out. If it's a great app, they can direct you to where the products are in the store, show you sales, bring you coupons. And I think that shows, you know, there's been several reports about in-store apps of brick and mortar retailers, certain ones have a very high usage rate. And a lot of them are doing a good job. And I ran a study recently in regard to you know, venture capital going into retail-focused companies and retail-focused you know, support companies for retail. And the numbers were staggering on how much venture capital is going into you know, in 2021 versus previous years. I ran the study a couple months ago, and we were already at an all-time high without even having entered the fourth quarter yet. And so I think that they're on the right track at making those adjustments. Now, are they going to happen instantly? No. And again, the pandemic threw a big obstacle in the way. But I think that this holiday season will be a great testing ground for that. And you know, not to say that retailers aren't going to be prepared for it. But there's a lot of changes coming. And I think that it's going to be really fascinating to watch. You know, I've, I've never claimed to have all the answers. I'm an observer. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see how everything reacts to this holiday season. 
some really interesting insights there just as far as not only the venture capital, but some developments that are taking place within this space. On that note, I wanted to ask you this to kind of wrap things up because CBRE, a ubiquitous name when it comes to retail real estate in particular, as you're looking out on this landscape of trends and things going on throughout the U.S., what are some things in specific that you've got your eye on, not only for this holiday season, but also going into next year in regards to retail real estate? What interests you most as far as developments that we might see over the next little bit? So obviously that first one that I mentioned, the idea of tech going into retail. I think that's fascinating. And I'm actually researching to make that a potential major report for 2022. So again, I'm not sure if it's going to come out, but I'm looking into the data and just seeing if there's something interesting there. And then it's going to be interesting to see which retailers come up with ways to differentiate. One thing that I read recently, which I agree with wholeheartedly, is the idea of using the return process as a way to differentiate. E-commerce one of the challenges of it, how do you do the returns? And you know, I'm not much of an e-commerce shopper. And that's one of the reasons why is I'm always nervous. Oh gosh, I don't want to have to deal with the return. And so I am much more of a store shopper. But that said, I think that a lot of retailers are thinking about that and how they're investing in better return policies and better, you know, they might have drop-off boxes for returns or you know, a dedicated counter for returns. And that's often a way to get back into it and, and make an additional sale or to be able to redirect to a new product. So I think that can be a differentiating factor within retailers. And again, that goes back to the idea of experience. That's a key place where if you have a good experience with the return, you'll probably go back to that store, right? And so I think that those two areas, the, the idea of tech jumping into retail and then the idea of differentiating, and I, I think returns are going to be a big way to reconnect that and should be interesting to watch in 2022. Well, absolutely. It gives us a few things to keep an eye on. And we're excited to see what further research comes from you guys at CBRE there over the next six months to one year. Well, Brandon, once again, we thank you for taking the time joining us today to discuss the Retail Holiday Trends Report. And it's been a fascinating conversation. It's been a pleasure, Trent. Thank you. Anytime. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. As always, great to have a representative from CBRE join us here on the show. And as I mentioned on the outset of that interview, they really are a giant in the retail real estate space. So great to kind of look at some of the data that they've been able to to generate over the past couple of months for the holiday season. Now, I'll keep the looking ahead segment short and sweet, and unlike what Leighton usually does, I will actually keep this short and sweet because this is a holiday version of the podcast. And once again, we thank everyone for listening as we do every week. But my looking ahead has to do with maybe next year's Thanksgiving weekend here in the United States and Thanksgiving weekend's on into the future as Target announced this past week that they will remain closed on Thanksgiving Day for the foreseeable future. Now, as we heard about last week from data generated by ICSC, 58% of shoppers that do shop during the Thanksgiving Day kind of holiday weekend stretching into Cyber Monday 
they shop on Thanksgiving and they begin their shopping on Thanksgiving for the weekend. Now, you wonder if, again, the effective target closing is going to funnel sales to those that might be open Thanksgiving, but at this point, that number is dwindling. The reason I'm looking ahead is to see if retail closures like those at Target, like those with certain mall properties, Simon is certainly one that comes to mind. If that's going to lead to a compression of sales around Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, and potentially even Sunday, which is kind of the weakest day of the holiday shopping weekend, or if instead customers will shift to buying online on Thanksgiving Day. And that's actually something interesting that was kind of lost in the whole, well, Target's closing all of these stores on Thanksgiving Day. The distribution centers for Target and their call centers were still staffed on this Thanksgiving Day. And so you wonder if those 58% of customers that are getting that head start on weekend shopping will begin shopping more and more increasingly online on Thanksgiving Day, or if they'll just wait until the next morning until Black Friday. So a lot going on there as far as kind of future holiday dynamics are concerned. We saw a 10-year window where it became almost routine for retailers to open up on Thanksgiving. A lot of these retailers were you know, 24-7 retailers that had historically always been open every day of the year. But I remember Kmart was one of the first big box retailers to open on Thanksgiving. And certainly in the early 2000s, they saw their best sales days, not on Black Friday, but on Thanksgiving Day because everyone else was closed. They kind of found a market inefficiency. And I wonder if you'll see this cycle back to maybe a retailer saying, hey, forget it, we're going to be open Thanksgiving to cater to that 58%. Or if you're going to see eventually most retailers close Thanksgiving and say, hey, that's what e-commerce is for. Please go to our website to start shopping. So kind of a lot of questions there for retailers looking ahead, but it is, I think, a positive for those retail employees who do want to be around family during the holiday season. Well, that'll do it for our show this week. Coming up next week, we'll be joined by Gene Dunford of Umqua Bank. Our discussion with him will center around the relationship between retailers and banks. It's an important relationship that on this show, I'll be honest, we're guilty of not talking about enough. He'll talk about banks' relationship with retailers as we close 2021 out, how that relationship has changed with the increase in e-commerce shopping over the past couple of years and how banks can provide different solutions to retailers looking to add new options to customers within their retail business. It's a fascinating conversation. Certainly looking forward to that with Gene next week. As always, we thank all of you for listening. We thank Brandon Eisner for joining us on today's show, and we'll be back with you about seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.